We are in our series, our Advent series, talking about longing. We've talked about uh, longing for the king, longing for hope, longing for peace. And this week, the title is essentially Longing for the End. What do I mean by that? I have noted before that Advent historically has focused more on the second coming of Jesus than on the first. And there is certainly uh, the fact that we mix those things together, and I think appropriately so. You probably weren't exactly thinking about it, but in one of the songs, the Canticle of Turning, which has become a more and more popular Christmas song, the refrain says, let the fires of your justice burn. Wipe away all tears, for the dawn draws near, and the world is about to turn. That's a pointing to the fires burning, and and actually in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, there's talk of destruction at the day of the Lord. There's talk of judgment throughout Scripture, but there is certainly a focus on the coming of the Lord Jesus when he returns, and that's actually what we're going to be focusing on. You may have picked that up already from the passage that April read. But we're going to be focusing on the second coming of Jesus. And, and it's, a, it's helpful for us to think about the fact that the, the story of the Bible is this linear story that heads to an end. It has an end in view. There's a beginning, creation, Genesis 1. Uh, and then there's the things that happen in the middle, the fall, and then redemption, most of the story. But there's the promise of glorification of all things made right when Jesus returns and that's what we see here. The fact is that this is a, a central part of the Christian story of God's work in this world, his work of redemption, his promises of what is to come. But, but all of culture really has this fascination with the end. We could just list movie after movie and show after show. Um, more recently, Station Eleven, Quiet Place, uh, Quiet Place Two, um, Children of Men, I'm Legend, Older ones, Armageddon, Last Man on Earth, Doomsday Preppers, you know, just a, a few shows or movies that, that think about the end. And, and it should cause us to ask the question, why, why do we think it is that there is a fascination on the end? I think one of the reasons is that we're, we're made to, to move in that direction. That's how we're created. And uh, what scripture gives us is this picture of what that's going to look like. I think there's some other reasons as well. One, one is that We like the idea of something bigger and more important enveloping us into that story, right? We've got all kinds of cares and anxieties and things in this world. And so to think about the end is to be drawn out of those things a little bit and to to focus on something that feels bigger and more important. And depending on what story about the end is told, uh, there are different ways that we might imagine that. Another reason that I think we have that desire to focus there is that at some level, it it allows us to think about rebirth, like a a do-over, essentially. Things starting anew, putting aside the old. Because most of those stories, they come often after the destruction that occurs with those who are, are left, right? Well, here we have one of multiple passages in Scripture that point us to the end and tell us about what happens. And as we look at what Paul has to say here, um, along with Thessalonians, it's Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy writing together. Paul, uh, as is his normal routine, he's, he's taking the lead here. But Paul says that uh, he, he gives us this picture of the coming of the Lord. And he does so, uh, this 
gives us this promise of the end coming in the midst of uncertainty. In the midst of the Thessalonians' uncertainty, and then we certainly have all kinds of uncertainty ourselves. And into that, he brings certainty. So I'm, I'm giving you my three points here, starting with uncertainty. The second is certainty. He gives us certainty, some level of that, uh, about the end, for our encouragement. And that is a look at the last verse there, that these words would be encouraging. So there's uncertainty, certainty, and encouragement. Uh, let me pray, and we'll jump in. Lord, we pray that you would... Open our hearts and minds to the truth and depth of your word, that you would meet us here and encourage us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The uncertainty that is held here. The the Thessalonians in particular had this question, and it was an existential question, about death and what happens and what is to come. They're worried, it says, about those who are asleep, have already gone to sleep, about when the Lord returns, what's going to happen about those who are awake and those who are asleep. And, and asleep, to be clear, if you have uncertainty there, it's, it's an uh, analogy, it's imagery of death. And it's not unusual that it's used to describe that for uh, a, a number of different cultures. But it's used to describe that because often the body looks like it's asleep. And, uh, and in the Christian story, it actually fits because while sleep is temporary, the promise that we find even here in this passage is that death is temporary as well because there is the resurrection to come. So this idea of being concerned, what's going to happen to those who have already died when Jesus returns? And and at some level, what's going to happen to us? Either now, if Jesus were to return, or with the prospect that they were going to die, what's going to happen to us if we die before Jesus returns? And, And that's a question that we could be asking now that all Christians throughout history uh, might ask, right? In light of death and the reality that, that life will end for us, what does that mean about the promises of the end and what is to come? Death is, is this part of our existence, and how do we think about that? And we, we don't, you know, Christmas time is often a, a, a thinking about the hopeful and the cute things and the, the nice things, even in the Christian story, right? The birth story is this story of life and, and birth and rejoicing. Uh, you know, we, we paint this cozy picture of Jesus being born and laid in a manger, even if it wasn't cozy or, or nice. We, we like to paint that picture. But here we have this, this focus on, on death, even. Um, Vito Ayuto was one of the uh, few guys on a committee that, that hired me for my first, one of the two jobs that I did first out of seminary. Uh, and he was in the presbytery that hired me to do college ministry. He's a part of the band Welcome Wagon, you may be familiar with, still a pastor in Brooklyn. Um, but he also wrote the liner notes for Sufjan Stevens' Silver and Gold CD set a number of years ago. And he writes about Advent, uh, because Silver and Gold is this Christmas album, and he writes about Advent and reminds us of its focus on the second coming and on death. And so this is what he says at the end of his notes um, and he's going to recognize a lot of the ways in which we celebrate Advent and Christmas. We've talked about we kind of have two things going on at the same time. We do the Christmas movies and Christmas trees and all these things. And, and I think we do those things, and those are good and right. But as followers of Jesus, there's something bigger going on. And particularly as we gather on Sunday mornings, that's our focus. But this is what Vito says in Sufjan's liner notes. He says, while the apoc- apocalyptic portion of Advent may be an articulation of those vivid images inherent in our anxious and anticipatory hearts. 
It's also much more than just an expression for the living. It's ultimately a call to participate in a regular rehearsal for death itself through meditation, contemplation, and self-examination. For even as we soldier through the corporate commodity of Christmas consumerism, for even as we cozy up to hot cocoa and Bing Crosby, for even as we make the Yuletide gay, mailing family photo cards, fruit baskets, and Christmas newsletters, for even as we participate in all the self-sanctifying rituals of the Advent season, we miss the obvious. That Advent is ultimately about death. The end is near, you're going to die, happy holidays. <laughs> Not typically the focus of, uh, of what we talk about at Christmas or at Advent, right? And yet, absolutely, positively true throughout Scripture, even in the incarnation story, there is a, a picture pointing to death. Even, the, even birth recognizes that there is death to come because this is the way that the world works in which we live, right? And so we're invited into that story to think about it, to reflect on it, and, and to deal with all of the heaviness that comes with that, ourselves having some of the same anxiety that the Thessalonians did about death, either for those who have gone before us, and, and we're in this particular time, Redeemer, Fountain Square, in the last year and a half, after not really ever having preached a funeral, I've preached three, right? And one of the prayers this morning was praying for those families celebrating Christmas for the first time without a loved one. And that, that's happening for multiple people that we know. And maybe for you. And, uh, and sometimes that makes Christmas even harder. Uh, particularly because things are supposed to be so great, right? And so we bring these anxieties to worship. We bring them to the Christmas story. We bring them to Advent. And hopefully, we ultimately, we bring them to the Lord. And, and, and I think within that recognition of these deep existential concerns that we have, we recognize that that's actually the ultimate concern. 1 Corinthians 15, when it talks about resurrection, it tells us that the, the ultimate enemy is death. And so we have all kinds of other anxieties, questions, doubts that we bring to the table when we think about the Christian story, when we think about Christ, when we think about Christmas, when we think about Advent. And there is... I believe in this passage, as in all of Scripture, hope brought to those questions, those uncertainties, they, those anxieties. I, I think it's also helpful to note, as we see that there is hope brought into those things. The, the last word of this passage is, therefore, encourage one another with these words. There is encouragement to be found here. There is hope to be brought into our anxieties and our questions and our uncertainties. And not a promise that they go away. But there is hope in the midst of it. But even as we look and hope for that, we also recognize that there are also uncertainties that we have around the very conversation of the coming of the Lord. When? How? What is it going to look like? What does it mean? All these kind of things. We, we, we maybe have seen in uh, pop culture questions of somebody finding themselves alone. It's a joke. Did I, did I miss the rapture? Um, you know, the, the whole conversation of the rapture in pop culture with the Left Behind series and, uh, and other books and movies and things. What, what does the rapture mean? And what does that look like? What are the implications for us? I, I think it's uh, helpful to note that that pop culture story, uh, even within the Christian culture, uh, is not, I think, what we find in Scripture. 
that, that traditional or that left behind picture of the rapture. Most of it comes actually from this passage in verse 17 in particular. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. One of the first things I want to recognize is that in this passage and the others, Daniel, Revelation, in the Gospels, the, the passages that speak of the coming of the Lord Jesus, they communicate a lot of truth, but they do it through a lot of imagery. And, and we, we need to understand when imagery is being used. And this is part of like basic Bible 101, the way that we study uh, the Bible. There are certain passages that are, are written as history, and, and we take them as history, and we believe that they are real and true. So uh, even this reference to uh, verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. We believe that that is history, that that is real story, that Jesus actually was born and laid in a manger uh, in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, that this actually happened. We believe that he lived and that he was murdered and that he rose again from the dead. That's the proclamation of Scripture. But there are times when the Bible writes history and we believe it and trust it as that. And there are times where even in the Gospels, Jesus uses parables. And we're not to understand those stories as events that actually happened. They're stories that are communicating something true. And we would make a mistake if we reversed that or mixed that up and we said, oh, the story of Jesus that is history is just a parable. It's just a mythical story. That, that's not what we believe as followers of Jesus. But where there is imagery being used, we have to understand it as that. So even in this passage, and then in chapter 5, there's even more talking about the day of the Lord. There is language of being asleep. It's actually referring to death, not being asleep. There's, there's language of, of uh, pains coming in, uh, labor pains uh, coming upon a pregnant woman to describe the end times. So the thief in the night. And it's not saying that those things are actually happening. It's, it's imagery to describe what's happening. So even as we come here to verse 17, we understand imagery. Verse 17, I'll read it again. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together, and who are left, or that's who's are still alive, haven't gone to sleep yet, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And this is the picture that we find elsewhere of the Lord coming down from heaven to earth. And, and there's a very clear imagery of what happens with a dignitary when he comes into a city. That, that the officials and the people of the city, they go out to meet him, and then they come into the city with him. This actually happens with Jesus when he comes in the triumphal entry. There are those in the city that go out and they meet him as he comes in and then they travel with him into the city. This is the picture that we find from Revelation 21, the new city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven to earth. And those who are alive meeting Jesus in the air and coming down with him. That's, that's the imagery that we find here. And so there is, at some level, a picture of the, the traditional rapture is not what is being described here. There's also, at the same time, a lot of question and a lot of uncertainty that continues to remain about the coming of the Lord Jesus the second time. There's so much that we do not know. And, uh, and Jesus makes that clear. You're not going to know uh, the day or the time. He, he says that in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, Paul echoes that same thing in verses 1 and 2 here. The Lord will come like a thief in the night. You're not going to know when it's going to come. 
And so we find ourselves with, with some picture of what's going to come and what's going to happen with Jesus' return and making all things right. But there continues to be a lot of question, a lot of opportunity to trust, a lot of opportunity to enter into the mystery of what God is offering us. And there is this recognition that Paul wants to bring some certainty. He notes in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. We don't want you to be uninformed. We want you to have some clarity. We want you to have some certainty. So he, he recognizes the uncertainty, and then he attempts to bring certainty. This is actually what Scripture is given for. God wants to communicate to us. He wants to reveal himself to us. He wants to give us certainty about who he is. And not about everything, again, even with his second coming. We don't understand it fully. We don't know exactly what it's going to be like. But we have some certainty brought to it that it is going to happen, that it is real, that it will, mat- uh, it will matter for us. And so we can embrace some of our uncertainty. We can bring that to him. We can bring our doubts and our questions and our anxieties and all the things that plague us. And we bring those to a Lord who promises that he's coming back, that he's coming back to make all things right. And so we can step into some of the certainty that this is real and true, that the word of God has been given to us and that it comes in order to bring us encouragement. And so there are certain aspects of the return that he's giving some clarity to. Remember, he's saying this is part of a bigger story. Verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. He's he's telling us, and this is a little bit of the, the, the Christmas time, Christmas story. It's a little bit of a spoiler alert, right? Jesus not only lived, was born, but he was killed. He was murdered. But then he rose again from the dead. This is, this is a recounting of the story that God is working in this world. And just as real as it was that he lived, that he was born in Bethlehem, just as real as it was that the shepherds visited him, and that a few years later the Magi visited him, and that he then grew up to heal disease and cast out demons and calm storms, just as real as that is. And we long to have viewed that. There is this promise. He's coming back. And he's coming back in a way that brings us great hope because we're told at the end of verse 17 that we will always be with the Lord. And this is an amazing promise. We think about, as we read the Gospels, as we think about the life of Jesus and and the desire to have been there, I mean, I, I think of the story that we looked at last week of the shepherds. And, and we can only imagine what it was like to have those angels show up and proclaim this amazing news. And then they got to go and witness the birth, or Jesus right after the birth. They got to witness Jesus as a baby, right? This amazing thing that was changing the world. And we think, what would it have been like to be there? But there's this promise that we will get to experience the presence of Jesus physically, not just spiritually, but physically present. This is, these are massive promises. And, and there's a sense in which the proclamation here is there is, so as we think about the end times, 100% there is something bigger going on. Whatever our anxieties and concerns and all the things that we deal with in life, and, and the Bible doesn't say those aren't important, but it is continually telling us there's a bigger story at play. And as we celebrate at Christmas, we're also looking to that second Advent, that second coming of Jesus, and it is a bigger story. That God man incarnate 
who did all the things that he did, he is coming back and he promises within that to always be with us. This is what we talk about continually. He's a God of relationship. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. He's always about his presence. We see that even in this amazing display that is going to happen when he does return. The, 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 the picture of what's going on there in verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. So there's, first of all, this cry of command. Then there's the voice of an archangel. And then there's the sound of the trumpet of God. And all of these things are proclamations of the Lord's presence. That We see them throughout uh, the scripture as a proclamation of his presence. And we see that as well with the picture of a cloud. That we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air as he's coming down and joining him in that. And the cloud is this representation of the presence of God. We saw it in Exodus. We saw it in Mount Sinai. We saw it in the wandering in the wilderness. We saw it filling the tabernacle as a, as a promise of his presence. We saw it at the transfiguration. And then we see it in, we saw it in his ascension. And then finally we see it in his return. It's a picture of the presence of Yahweh. The creator God who has continually said, I want to be present with you. I want relationship with you. And when he comes, it's not just that he comes with the judgment, with the power, and those things are true. And there's, there's some sense in which we should tremble. If we had read all the verses, uh, the first 11 verses of chapter 5, there would be some trembling there. The destruction that is promised at the day of the Lord. The judgment that is to come, even as he's telling his people the people who are part of the people of God, who are trusting and united with Jesus, that there is salvation and not wrath for them. There, is, there should be some level of trembling here. But what he comes with is resurrection. Verse 14 t- tells us about Jesus dying and rising. And then it says he's going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who are dead. He's going to bring them with him and in resurrection. Because in verse 16 and 17, we see that the Lord will descend. And at the end of verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, he's addressing some of the questions. The, the first is uh, this question that they were having about people who had already died, people who were alive. But the, we should not lose sight of what he's promising here is resurrection for everybody. That there is a physical resurrection promised for all of us. That we're reminded that Jesus' resurrection was just the first of, it was a foretaste. It was the first fruits he described of our own resurrection. And that it is resurrection to eternity when we will always be with the Lord. This is an amazing picture. We, we see it uh, echoed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this long chapter about the beauty of the resurrection. And, and this is what he says. This is a further picture of what happens at his return. And what resurrection for us means. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. So again, addressing not everybody's going to be dead at the time. Some people will be alive. But for either, there is this incredible promise. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, 
Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And these are verses that we typically hear more at Easter, right? Not, not at Christmas. At all, part of the same story. We have to understand it together. But we also see that it is central to what we celebrate at Advent, this promise of resurrection to come for us. Not just a celebration of Jesus' birth or life or death or resurrection, but a celebration of our resurrection that comes when he returns. And so we're invited into these these stories that that maybe aren't focused on as much in our our own lives and our our Bible study or in our churches. And and yet there's a call to say, "This this is central. Our own resurrection is promised in the second coming of Jesus. So at Advent, we're actually looking forward to Jesus's return and our resurrection within that. And so that is this promise that this truth is for our encouragement, that there is an impact for us now, that there is this addressing of our concerns and our anxieties. And, and, and not to say that the gospel is, is just this thing that's going to remove our anxieties. Uh, there, there is a, a strain today in this therapeutic culture that says that the answer to our problems is that we would be comfortable and not have anxiety. Again, we're finding hope brought into that. It doesn't make them go away. It doesn't make our concerns and our doubts and our questions and our uncertainties all go away, but it brings hope and clarity in the midst of it that we might encourage one another. And and so we find uh, the encouragement that comes from these words, that this is true and that this matters for us. Verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. We find the same thing even with the harsher language of judgment that is to come in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5. In verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. These words are encouragement and and truth for us. And we, I will read Chapter 5, verse 9, we are promised salvation because of the work of God. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a promise for us of hope in the midst of his return. And we are invited to look to that and find hope and allow it to change our lives. There, There was some research done by some researchers out of University of Chicago, Penn State, and I would pronounce it wrong, but it's the second largest university in Denmark. And uh, in 2020, they did a study about how people were handling the pandemic. And they argue in that study that those who watched and read these post-apocalyptic stories and movies, that they were actually better prepared to deal with the pandemic because their imagination had been engaged to think about significant global issues and what might come from that. Now, there might be some of those that probably wouldn't help you, right? But the, the fact that the imagination on big global things happening would affect the way that we would just experience a pandemic, if that is true, and we don't have reason to doubt that it's true, how much more if the story that we're telling is real and true about what is actually going to happen, how much more might that bring us hope in the midst of of the things that we experience, the uncertainties that we have, the doubts that we have. And and this is the promise continually through scripture is this is true. This is happening. 
And it matters for you and it's going to happen for you. Imagine, as, as we think about one of, the, one of our concerns, one of our uncertainties right now is what is going to happen with the economy. With inflation, we're headed for a recession. You know, what's happening in the housing market? Should I buy now or later? Mortgage rates and all that stuff, right? How much would it change our spending, our investment, our, our financial decisions if we knew exactly what was going to happen? It would change those things dramatically. Is that, that's the answer. Um, at least it should. Uh, if you knew what was going to happen, you, you would take steps. And I'm not saying that if I, if I knew what was going to happen, I would probably have to ask somebody advice of, okay, now what does that mean about what I should do, right? Because uh, anyway, it would change the way that we spent our money and our time and our investments, right? And here we have this promise of something that is to come, our resurrection when Jesus Christ returns. And, and the invitation is to join into that story and allow it to affect our lives, to, to find encouragement and hope in the work that he has done. And the, and the, the fact is, the, the matter is that this story is all him in his work because we're not going to be able to accomplish our own salvation. The salvation comes from him. The promise comes from him. The promise comes from what he is going to do when he returns, what he has already done in his first coming and life and death and resurrection and what he's going to do when he returns. It's not up to us to get it right because we're going to mess it up every time. And so we hear the story, we're invited in, and we get to join in with the God who is offering his presence. And that hope comes because, again, the end of verse 17, we will always be with the Lord. We will always be with him in his presence. And there's this picture here of Revelation 22. And Revelation 22 describes the, the new heavens and the new earth and the presence of God with us in that, walking with us. It's, it's, a, it's a looking back to the garden when Jesus walked with Adam and Eve before the fall. And, and yet it's even a, a more glorious picture. And there, I think, 100%, there's just this imagery that engages our imagination. It, I, I don't think it gives us a picture of exactly what it's actually going to look like this new heavens and new earth, but it invites us to imagine what things will be like in his presence forever. And that's what he is offering. And so as we think in this Advent season about his second coming, we can find hope and encouragement, even when we're faced with death and uncertainty and mess that is sometimes highlighted in this season. We can find, I pray, hope because of what his second coming means. So that when we hear Advent is ultimately about death, the end is near, you're going to die, happy holidays, we can rejoice because there is encouragement here for us. Let me pray.